Let's continue now our series in Luke's Gospel as we work our way through this wonderful Gospel and are in the seventh chapter. beginning with verse 36. Let us pray together. Our Father, we have just sung your praises. We have exalted you and lifted you high as the Lord of heaven and earth, And we have focused upon our own need of more love for Christ. We would thank you that your love for us is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and demonstrated to us in the cross of Christ with unmistakable finality. But Father, our own hearts sometimes are cold, sometimes indifferent, and as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we abhor that. And we would have hearts that more and more reflect the love that you show to us by loving you in return. Open this text before us. Work within every heart here, those who may be lost in need of the Savior and those who are saved, your people gather to worship your name, that we may see the greatness of your grace, the marvel of your mercy, and that we may understand something of what it means that our Savior has come into this world to do for us this wondrous miracle of saving us from our hell-deserving sins. In the name of Christ, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and let's stand together, beginning to read at verse 36 of Luke's Gospel the seventh chapter. This is the word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Now, surely you see that Luke is giving to us clearer and clearer views of who the Lord Jesus is. He is the one who healed the centurion's servant at a distance. He raised to life the son of the widow of Nain. And now we see something of the great and marvelous love that he has for sinners, how he is the redeemer of the lost. Jesus is invited to the home of Simon, a Pharisee. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe he's curious. Is this man really a prophet? Perhaps he's just showing outward courtesy to a teacher who has come to the community. While not friendly, Simon may not have invited him for sinister purposes or reasons. We just don't really know. Jesus does not, however, receive a particularly warm reception from Simon. Simon seems almost indifferent to the guests that he has invited. But Jesus is not indifferent to Simon. Simon is indifferent to Jesus, but Jesus is not indifferent to Simon. And while the guests were reclining at dinner, remember the left elbow would be on the table, the feet jutting out behind the torso. While he is reclining at table, a woman came into the room. Did she mingle with the servants? Did she come in with the crowd? All we know is that in one way or another, she enters into the home of Simon the Pharisee, and then we see, first of all, a sinful woman anoints Jesus. Who is this woman? Well, we know that it's not Mary of Bethany. She anoints Jesus at a different point in his life. The actions are not the same. The purpose is not the same. The context differs. There are those who think that this is Mary Magdalene, but there's no reason to think that. The the scriptures do not give us any indication that it's Mary Magdalene. As a matter of fact, we do not know the name of this woman who anoints Jesus in the home of Simon the Pharisee. But it is a woman we know who has a reputation. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Continuative action and past time. She was a sinner. Probably means that this woman had been a prostitute. She had been irresistibly drawn to Jesus who preached the good news that her sins could be forgiven. And she now comes because her sins have been forgiven and she desires to show gratitude to the Savior. Her present character, this woman has been changed. She is not the woman that she was before. 
Perhaps she had heard the Lord Jesus say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. But grace, whatever word she heard from Jesus, grace had changed her life. Grace never leaves a sinner as he is. And so she's consumed. She is overwhelmed with the grace that has been shown to her, with the love that has been displayed to her, with the forgiveness of sins that has entered into her heart and been declared by Jesus. She is consumed and absorbed then by one thought. I must show gratitude to Jesus. Now, Jewish women wore around their necks, typically, an alabaster jar. Sometimes alabaster, most of the time alabaster. It was a jar of ointment or of perfume, and they could even wear their jar on the Sabbath. It was usually white or yellow stone with a top, says one of the ancients, that closed like a rosebud. And she would use that, probably very expensive perfume or ointment. She would use that in order to anoint the feet, not the head, but the feet of Jesus. Had she used that very perfume in her previous sinful life? Well, she's thankful to Jesus and thankful for a change of life. But as she comes to anoint Jesus' feet, which is her purpose, she's overwhelmed with emotion. She just can't contain. And we read in verse 38, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Luther called this heart water, and surely it was. Her heart is overflowing with the gratitude that has been shown to her for the forgiveness of her sins. I really don't think that she came in thinking, now what's going to happen is this. I'm going to come behind Jesus and anoint his feet with with my ointment. And then in the process, I'm going to weep all over his feet. I don't think that was her plan. She just can't help herself. And interestingly enough, the Greek New Testament uses the term brecane for her tears. Now, ordinarily, the term brecane means rain. And I can't help but think that Luke here is giving to us a word picture. This woman is raining tears on her Savior's feet. It's pouring, it's a deluge, it's pouring out, just as we see sometimes here in August, the skies open with rain, her eyes are just pouring tears on the feet of her Savior. And she had probably used those very eyes from which the tears are now falling. She had used those eyes to draw others to sin. Undoubtedly, she had taken in sin, as we all have, by our eyes. But now her eyes rain tears of gratitude. And so like a spring rain showing the return of life, she shows that there is now life in her heart by the tears, the genuine tears, the genuine heartfelt tears, the heart water that comes now onto her Savior's feet. And what humility of attitude Possibly the tears come by impulse, as I have suggested. Maybe she wipes her tears from his feet because she didn't expect this to happen, but she wipes his tears with her tresses. I think we can imagine, rightly, 
long, dark tresses of a Jewess. She unbinds her hair. Now, Jewish women didn't unbind their hair in public, but she's unbinding her hair. She's oblivious to the public. All she cares about is her Savior. She's wetting his feet. They must be dried. And so she takes her hair and she begins to use her hair as a towel to dry the Savior's feet from her tears. And after this expression of emotion, she anoints Jesus' feet. She's doing the menial work of a slave. She wants to be at the Savior's feet. Where do you want to be, by the way? This woman wanted to be at the Savior's feet. That's where she knew she belonged. Where do you want to be in relation to the Savior? Do you want to be above him? Do you want to be beside him? Or do you recognize he is the authority, he is the Savior, he is the forgiver of your sins? Owing all to him, I want to be at his feet. The next time you open, you ladies, and you men are around your wives or sister or some friend, the next time you open a bottle of perfume and the aroma fills the room, will you think about this woman? Will you remember that this is the woman who had been a great sinner, who has a great Savior, and points you to the same Savior, and that now the aroma of the gospel should fill our lives? Will you remember that the next time you smell perfume? And the text says that she kissed his feet. She was kissing his feet affectionately. And again, the verb indicates that she was kissing his feet over and over again. She was kissing his feet repeatedly. Alfred Plummer, one of the older commentators, says that kissing was a common mark of deep reverence, especially to leading rabbis. But a rabbi would never have allowed this. It's great courage that's shown here. She enters into the house of a Pharisee, even though, if I'm right in assuming that this sinful woman of the city means that she was a prostitute, as I think it does, she's coming into the house of someone who would disdain her. But what really shows, don't you agree, what really shows in this passage is love. Tremendous, overwhelming, wondrous passionate love from this woman's heart for her Savior. She did this because there was much love in her heart. Her act was done for Christ, and that is the point. She anointed Jesus' feet. Those feet, those feet, she anointed those feet that she could not have known would be nailed to a cross for the forgiveness of her sins. She could not have known that the reason her sins could be forgiven is because those feet would be nailed to a cross. She could not have known that those feet and hands and that body nailed to a cross would bear all of the sins of all of God's people throughout all of the ages. Those feet, she could not have known, would be nailed to the cross for her sins. But this woman did see the heart that would take those feet to the cross. She did see, through the forgiveness of her sins, what it would take to bring this about. Feelings do not save us. But where there is grace, there should be deep feeling. The affection should be moved to serve Christ. And that's what we see in this passage with this woman. But then, secondly, there's Simon's response. Simon the Pharisee has asked Jesus to his table. 
This woman has come and has anointed his feet, wept all over his feet, and Simon was contemptuous. Notice verse 39, the way it's written. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Were he really a prophet, this, this man, were he really a prophet? The very language is contemptuous language. Any rabbi would have rejected her attention. How can he be a prophet, allowing her to clutch onto him, which is a good translation of the word, the way she's doing? Why is he allowing this woman to touch him? Why would he do such a thing? And do you remember the text last week? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Simon is offended. Simon is offended and he stumbles over Christ. Simon is self-righteous. Chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, some of you are aware that much New Testament scholarship today, especially in certain circles, says that we've gotten the Pharisees all wrong. That the Pharisees weren't self-righteous after all. All you have to do is read the the writings of those who came after them, and you can see that they believed in sin, and they believed in grace, and we've just misunderstood the Pharisees. Well, we've not misunderstood the Pharisees. The New Testament does represent them as incredibly self-righteous as a group. One can believe in sin and grace and the need of forgiveness without understanding his own need because he is a sinner and in need of grace and forgiveness. And there is a Pharisee in every human heart. Simon just has the whole thing wrong. Everything about it, he doesn't have Jesus right. He doesn't have the woman right. He doesn't have sin, grace, forgiveness right. Everything is just wrong in his thinking. Because Simon... Simon has no sense of debt to Jesus. Right? He has no sense of debt to Jesus. Do you? So thirdly, Jesus probes this Pharisee's heart. Jesus answers the thought of Simon's heart and shows that he knows all about Simon and he knows all about this woman. And so he gives this illustration in verses 41 through 43. Look at it again. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So there are two who owe a debt to their creditor. The translator note of the New English translation, which is sponsored by the Society of Biblical Literature, says the silver coins were denarii. The denarius was worth about a day's wage for a laborer. 
This would be an amount worth not quite two years' pay. The debts were significant. They represented two months' pay and one and three-quarter years' pay, 20 months, based on a six-day work week. So the debts, the money, it's significant. But the attitudes of the two debtors are quite different. Don't be confused here. We love him because he first loved us. Our love for Christ is not meritorious. It is not because she loved that her sins were forgiven, but the manner in which she loves shows that she is aware of the greatness of the debt that has been forgiven by the Lord Jesus. To put it another way, the creditor did not forgive the debtors because the debtors loved him. The creditor forgave out of free grace. Now, which one in this illustration would most love the creditor that made a gift of what was owed? Well, again, in verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus tells him he's judged rightly. And when he says, I suppose, he seems reluctant. Answering this way will expose Simon's heart. He doesn't just want to come right out and say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's the one that has been forgiven the greater debt. And I see what you're saying, Jesus, and it does really condemn my heart. You know, he says, I, I suppose, I suppose it's the one who has been forgiven the most. But Jesus thrusts at home in verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Perhaps Jesus turns and looks at this woman for the very first time. Simon didn't see a woman at all. He saw an object of opprobrium. He didn't see a human being created in God's image, now fallen but redeemed through God's mercy. He did not see the loved one of the Lord. He did not see the greatness of God's grace to this woman. He did not see the love of God that has been given to this woman. And we see in verses 45 and 46 that Simon is loveless. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. But this woman... This woman, Hendrickson sums it up so crisply. Instead of water for Jesus' feet, this woman had provided tears, indicative of repentance. Instead of a kiss upon the cheek, she had planted ever so many fervent kisses on the feet, symbols of human gratitude. And instead of cheap olive oil for the head, she had poured precious and fragrant perfume on the feet. You see, Simon had not even provided the cheap social amenities of the day. And undoubtedly, Simon would have said, I'm a sinner, I need grace, but I'm not a sinner like this woman. Proving that he did not understand sin, did not understand his own heart, did not see his own need, and had no understanding of grace. Now, let's not be pharisaical about the Pharisees. We need to see our need 
We need to see what our sin deserves. We need to see Jesus as the only Redeemer. And in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The point? Her outpouring of love to Jesus shows that she knows that she has been forgiven. But Simon... You, you show that you have not been forgiven. I think Hendrickson is right. The inference mercifully attenuated to has been forgiven little. But now we see Jesus defending this great act of grace and defending this woman before them all. As we see, fourthly, Jesus assures this woman of her forgiveness. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus assures her with his own word, your sins are forgiven. May it enter into some heart for the very first time this morning who trusts in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. May it fill the hearts and lives of those of us who know that our sins have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It's a perfect passive, continued result of a completed act. That once having been forgiven, you will always be forgiven. Once having been forgiven, you remain forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and remain, no matter what the Pharisee may say about it, no matter what Simon says about it, no matter what anyone says about it, your sins are forgiven. She was forgiven before she entered the room. Her love showed that she had already experienced salvation. But those who are sitting at the table, reclining at the table, according to verse 49, object. Those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, I suppose it's possible to interpret that, that they're just amazed at who Jesus is, and they're wondering who Jesus is, but I don't think that's true to you. They're Pharisees. They've seen Jesus touching, talking with this sinful woman, and they're saying, who is this that thinks he can do such a thing? that thinks he can make such a pronouncement, that thinks he can assure someone that her sins, her great sins, are forgiven. And so the scene of chapter 5 is repeated. There Jesus healed the paralytic, he forgave the sins of the paralytic, and he was accused of blasphemy. But it's the right question. Even if asked in the wrong spirit, even if asked in the wrong way, it's the right question Who is this? And that's what Luke is doing all through his gospel. That's the great question. Who is this that was born of a virgin? Who is this that can heal the centurion's servant at a distance, not even going there? Who is this that can raise the the widow's son to life? Who is this that can speak with such grace way down to the heart of a prostitute that she is forgiven of all her sins and now lives a life of gratitude? The question is the right question, and it's unavoidable. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. Who is this? And in answer to that, 
the Lord Jesus, in sovereign authority, says to this woman what only God could say, go in peace. Not in fear of hell, not in fear of the judgment to come, not in fear that maybe your sins are not forgiven. You go and live in the peace that has been pronounced into your heart by my grace. Now, people of God, it's a simple narrative. Beautiful, I think, don't you? I think it's one of the most beautiful narratives in all of the New Testament. Let's bring it together and think about this for ourselves. Do you see this man, Simon, and his friends? Do you see Simon reluctant, backing away from Jesus, not caring about this woman, not knowing what his own heart needs? Do you see these, these men around this table? Who is this, they ask in a scornful way. They didn't see their sin. They didn't see their need. Do you see your sin? Do you see your need? Do you see that Jesus Christ is the Savior? Do you see this woman? Her sins indeed had been great. Her sins had been deep. Her sins had been real assaults upon the holiness of God. But no matter how many your sins have been, Jesus can save you from your sins, as he did this woman. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But most importantly, do you see Jesus? Do you see that he knows the heart? He knew Simon's heart. He knows those men's hearts around the table. He knows this woman's heart. Do you see how he can change the heart? Do you see that he has authority to forgive sin, that he forgave this woman and changed her life based upon the work of the cross that lay before him, and that he can change and forgive you based on the work of the cross that is behind him? Do you see that Jesus is the friend of sinners? That even though Simon was aloof and indifferent to Jesus, Jesus was not aloof and distant from him. That he saved this woman from her deep sin. That assurance is God's gift evidenced by her act, not achieved by her act. Jesus does not say to her that love saved her, but her faith saved her. Your faith has saved you. That is to say, your trust in me has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see that? That her tears were a fount of love as a response to grace, not a cause for the reception of grace. She didn't earn it. She didn't merit it. That it will always be true. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Tears of repentance, tears of joy and gratitude are the results of redemption and not the cause of redemption. But let me ask you this. Will you see what this text calls upon us Christians to do in response to God's grace? If you will but think what the Lord has done for me, not only for this woman, what he has done for me, 
sin, grace, gratitude. The text calls upon believers so to understand what the Lord has done for us that you and I will live in gratitude. And if you are moved to sentimentalism, as you have heard this sermon this morning, I failed of my purpose, or you have failed to hear it properly, let the redeeming work of Christ lead us to action, to the washing of the saints' feet, for what we do to the least of his children we do unto him with whom his children are in union. We would all like to see Christians doing more and doing more better, serving others, obeying. But from where does this come? There's only one source. That is knowing deep within my heart what Christ has done for me. J.C. Ryle said it so lovely, so beautifully. The fear of punishment, the desire of reward, the sense of duty are all useful arguments in their own way to persuade men to holiness, but they are all weak and powerless until a man loves Christ. Once let that mighty principle get hold of a man, and you will see his whole life changed. The secret of holiness for the Christian is to know that your sins are pardoned. Those who know Christ's compassion, who see that his mercy is amazing, take positive steps to live for the glory of the Savior. God delights to show grace. You cannot make sin right. You have nothing to pay. Only Jesus could do that. And then you live in gratitude. Now, someone is here this morning, and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard for me to believe in a gathering such as this. There's not someone here who has not trusted in Christ. One of the old preachers told a very interesting tale. There was a a nobleman in a certain place that had a complete change of heart because the Lord saved him from his sins. He became a preacher. He went throughout the territory preaching to his renters and those who who were indebted to him in various ways. One day, he got this idea for presenting the gospel. He sent out word, I'm going to be in such and such a place from 10 to 12. And if you will come from 10 to 12 and bring your bills, I'm going to take care of all of your debts for you. And so the crowd gathered at 10 o'clock in the morning. One old couple, debt-laden couple in their 80s, they said, will he really pay our debts? And the crowd said, well, go and see, go and see. So they went in. Will you really pay our debts? I said, if you would come, I would pay your debts. And so he wrote out a check and he paid all of their debts. Oh, we have to go tell others. No, no, you have to wait here until 12. The word has already gone out. They have to respond in faith. Nobody came in. 12 o'clock, the clock struck. The nobleman went out with the old couple, and all the crowd gathered round and said to the old couple, did he pay your debts? Yes, he did. They gathered round and said, pay my debts, pay my debts. He said, no, I told you 10 to 12, that was the space. You didn't come. And he began to use that for preaching the gospel, because you see the point. All illustrations of divine things fall short, but you see the point, don't you? Would you go into eternity without knowing your debts are paid? From 10 to 12, today is the day of salvation. 
The opportunity for hearing the gospel is now. And if you go out into eternity without trusting in Jesus Christ, then on the day of judgment, you will owe all your debt. But those of us who have trusted in Christ, our debts have been paid by him on the cross. And when we stand before him on the day of judgment, we can say, as did that old couple, yes, he paid my debt. He paid my debt. For this woman in this passage, living her new Christian life is traceable to one thing. She knew that she had been much, much forgiven. Do you know that? God's people said, Amen. Amen.